Hey there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student. Been a while since we've had a podcast, in part because it was the end of the third year for our medical students. Uh, we have a fourth year medical student here today. Alex, how about an introduction? Hi, my name is Alex Howard. Um, I'm a fourth, new, newly fourth year medical student from Rocky Vista down in St. George. And I have the pleasure of doing a rotation here at Utah State Hospital in uh, July. So uh, I ask all of my fourth year students this eventually. And the question is this, does it feel good to be a fourth year student compared to third year? Yeah, I think it does. That's a big weight off your shoulders when it comes to the amount of tests that you don't have to do anymore. So, You have a few things ahead of you this year. As a brand new fourth year student, you're now panicked about different things. Correct. Panicked might not be the right word. Tell me a couple of things that immediately enter your mind as you move into the fourth year. Sure. I mean, some of the things that are on the forefront of fourth year is setting up audition rotations. So I'm going into family medicine, so I've been researching family medicine programs and applying for audition rotations. How's that going so far? Good. I've secured two so far, so better than zero. That's uh, tremendous. I think starting early on those audition rotations seems to make a difference. Um, I don't think I did any audition rotations. It's a miracle I even matched. So. Um, <laughs> your topic today. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up with this topic. Sure. So part of be going into family medicine, you know, I have kind of an area of interest in a lot of things. And one of the things that came up during my third year clerkships was treating opioid addiction. Um, I had the opportunity to work with a family physician that specialized in addiction medicine, and he kind of showed me um, how devastating the opioid, you know, use disorder can be, and then the options that uh, physicians have to treat it. I was very impressed with uh, the topic that you chose. I was also very impressed with your interest in medication-assisted therapy after this rotation that you had. And the physician you worked with, I think you also mentioned, he influenced you quite a bit. Tell me how it was that he influenced you so much, because I, I think I, I don't always hear those kinds of comments from medical students about being so uh, influenced by a physician, right? Yeah. So I think one thing that he did really well was he really painted the picture on why he went into addiction medicine. And so that showed me kind of the internal drive and desire to help people that are suffering from drug and alcohol addiction. Um, and it really had an influence on me of, well, here's this, you know, multifaceted opioid epidemic that was in part caused by physicians and medical you know companies um, and now we're having to help treat it this opioid crisis by the way thank you for sharing that I I sometimes wonder what it is that makes a, a good attending physician and I think what you're saying is when you can see the inner workings of your attendings mind to some extent you can appreciate their perspective better on what they do and why they do it Exactly, yes. Yeah, I like that. I think, I think you had also mentioned that you were impressed by um, the nature of this person, that there was a lot of, uh, not necessarily charity, but a lot of empathy for the patients and a, a great deal of intent to help, even though he clearly had to have boundaries doing that. Correct, yeah. I mean, opioid and alcohol and drug addiction in general is something that can be met with a lot of scrutiny and um, stigma. And I think he was able to really demonstrate, you know, addiction is considered a, a disease, a medical disease. Um, and he was kind of treating people with a medical disease rather than 
bringing in you know morals or emotions into it shame guilt the kinds of things that keep people addicted exactly yeah, solve the problem yeah I uh, very cool and I appreciate you sharing that the the issue of the opioid crisis this is a repeat of problems from the past tell me a little bit about previous epidemics that we've had in the United States sure so I mean, treating pain with opiates has been around for several centuries. Um, the first real identified uh, problem with opiates came out in the mid-1800s, um, shortly after the Civil War. So morphine was used at that time to treat a lot of soldiers and subsequent veterans with chronic pain. And it was very quickly identified that these veterans were coming, becoming addicted to morphine and, and opiates and um, transition that, you know, at that time it was, there were several uh, governmental policies and reforms that were put into place to try and help reduce the amount of morphine being prescribed. Um, and that eventually led to somewhat curb the problem that was emerging in the late 1800s. The problem emerged again in the 1970s, roughly, but this time it wasn't driven by physician prescribing so much. Tell me how this uh, epidemic, the, the sub-epidemic that we're going to note between the 1850-ish epidemic mm -hmm. and the maybe 2000s epidemic, how, tell me a little bit about that epidemic. Sure, well, there was kind of a shift from, you know, rather than people being addicted to morphine or prescribed medications, there was now a huge influx of the illicit drug heroin. So that came in shortly after the end of World War II when trade embargoes and things started opening up. And in New York City, there was a really, really high emergence of heroin use um, beginning you know, in the late 1940s and leading all the way into the 60s and 70s. Well, that's interesting because I was, I was not really tracking the idea that the opioid crisis had started or, or that this number of years associated with the heroin opioid crisis. I, w I wasn't tracking that that was associated with the time after World War II changes embargoes. I was, I was aware that our Vietnam veterans who were coming back from Vietnam and the Middle East also, this seemed to have some influence on the uh, use of opioids in the United States. Yeah, I, I, I read an um, estimation that one in every two uh, soldiers that went to Vietnam developed a heroin addiction while they were serving um, in the Vietnam War. In response to this heroin addiction escalation, uh, or dependency is probably a better word, I think addiction is a, a word that might not be as helpful in terms of treatment. Uh, there were some responses by the government at that time. I think the, that in previous podcasts we've talked about uh, President Nixon's response to drugs uh, that perhaps in some places it was uh, an overreach. In this case, it seems that maybe there were some effective steps taken by uh, the war on drugs, so to speak. I don't know if it was President Nixon or if it was somebody else. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. So I think it was either late in the 50s or early in the 60s, heroin was really becoming a problem and leading to a lot of criminality. And so there was you know, I think a pretty strong effort um, by politicians to really try and combat, you know, this heroin dependence and heroin, you know, misuse. And 
essentially this is where the methadone clinic emerged. So methadone being a longer-acting opiate that didn't give the same type of euphoric sensations that heroin did became a standard of medical treatment for people with heroin dependence. The methadone clinics really haven't changed substantially uh, since that time and medication-assisted therapy has had some modifications, but I think we'll pick that up in hopefully a second podcast next week. Does that sound right? That sounds correct. So as far as the shelf exam, we're going to break the podcast up into two steps. The first one, we'll talk about the underpinnings of the opioid crisis. Where did it come from? And hopefully be able to be part of the solution, right? How did we make the mistakes? How can we as physicians avoid falling into that? Generally speaking, in these podcasts, we try to have some very high yield points early on in the podcast to address the things that might show up on exams. You reviewed UWorld for principles that seem to be tested frequently regarding opioid use disorder. Can you go ahead and comment on that? Of course. So one of the things that's commonly on third-year students' mind is what do I need to know for an upcoming shelf exam or step two exam? Um, In relation to opioid dependence and opioid use disorder, there is a big distinction that I came across in when can we use opiates safely and when are they kind of contraindicated. And so one of the big things that came up is when we're dealing with cancer-related pain. And so there is a time and a place to use opiates, especially in patients that have severe, moderate to severe cancer-related pain. So this would be pain that keeps a patient up at night, prosthetic mets to you know, bone and causing bone pain. And in those situations, it's appropriate to use either short or long-acting opiates. It seems the more I complete CME education, the more I find that there are no good places to use opioid pain uh, medications other than cancer relief. And that's the only place where it seems that uh, CME, FDA, National Academy of Science, there's sort of a convergence of thinking that that only. Yes. I'd say cancer-related pain and in the situation of acute severe pain in an emergency setting. So a patient comes in with after a motor vehicle accident, multiple long bone fractures, they're just dying of pain. And I think it's appropriate to always start with non-opioid medications. Um, you know, you can try, you know, Ketorolac or something like that. But if there's continued pain in that setting, it is appropriate to use uh, intravenous opioid medications. There is a lot of information about how to manage pain that are in, that is in CMEs. I was surprised about the number of options, and again, we'll pick that up, I think, in the next podcast. So let's talk about um, the underpinnings of, of the opioid crisis. Now, if you were to talk to me maybe yesterday, I would say, oh my gosh, the physicians caused this. If you were to talk to me a week ago, I would say, I can't believe that they mandated the fifth vital sign, right, of pain. Another week I might have said, it's those darn pharmacies in the Appalachian uh, Hills that are sending out hundreds of pills per person per year, or per per year, right, whatever it is. Uh, And the reality is, there has been a pretty good review of the underpinnings of of the opioid crisis done by our government, something called the President's Commission 
on combating drug addiction and the opioid crisis. A couple of governors were involved in this. One, uh, Chris Christie, I think a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, a few other people that are, uh, I think, an attorney general from Florida. And then undoubtedly, there were a lot of other people involved in this group. Those were some of the people that were listed prominently. My feeling is, as I talked about this article with you, that you had found evidence for all of these kinds of things. So the, the, the structure of the podcast, what I think we'll try and do then, is talk about the bullet points that they provided, and I'll have you comment on what you learned and what you read and some examples about these different bullet points. And in all fairness, I don't feel like I am nearly up on this as you are. I try to be kind of caught up with my medical students on these podcasts when we go through this. I'm not there with you. so. Uh, when I make a mistake, you've got to be brave enough to jump in and say, no. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's start off with the uh, first bullet point. The crisis, um, one of the factors in this new crisis that I think started in about uh, 1999 is that there were unsubstantiated claims about opioids that seemed to be perpetuated. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So if, as I went back and looked at kind of, okay, where are the origins of where we are today with this huge opioid dependency problem, it actually started arising in the 1980s. And so there was a, a couple of pretty prominent um, medical academies, such as the American uh, Pain Academy and even the Anesthesiology Society, um, really started coming out with, we need to treat pain better. And the World Health Organization actually came out with a, a pain management ladder that introduced opiates into treating pain in hospitalized patients. And there, interestingly, there was one small little paragraph that came out in 1980. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up here. I think this was in the New England Journal of Medicine, right? It was, yeah. It, yeah. Was, a, it was a small little paragraph um, by Porter and Jick, and this was in 1980, that essentially talked about that there was out of I think 11,000 patients who were hospitalized, treated with opiates, only four developed addictive qualities. And this small, it wasn't a randomized controlled trial. Um, there wasn't, wasn't great follow-up on this. It was terrible follow-up. There was It was a standalone letter Correct. to the editor. And, and this little brief editorial was cited over 600 times in the following 20 years really um, miscited by organizations and articles promoting the use of opiates in treatment of chronic pain. And might I add, treatment in an outpatient setting, whereas this was done in a hospitalized setting. Yeah, there was a great article that we read. Have it here in my hot little hands, right? Uh, this was the article from Loom, L-E-U-N-G. I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bachelor of Science in Pharmacology. I think that's what the abbreviation was. She's out of Toronto. And uh, essentially said, listen, there's a problem with the way we cite literature. So there are two problems here. One is that we wanted to believe what we wanted to believe. The second was we weren't going back and looking at the references, right? One of the things that I try to do in this podcast series is have my students consistently go back and look at the references. If it's cited, if it's a proof in the article, it needs to say where the proof came from, and that needs to be reviewed because it's very easy to change the context of an article. I think they went and looked at all of the articles that cited this 
and what they said was 440 of those articles uh, said it was proof that opioids were not addictive. Nearly 500 said, didn't even mention that this was uh, inpatient hospital patients, right? So Correct. A really misrepresentation of that. Yeah, and I, I thought I had seen an article somewhere else, I can't find this now, where the articles that cited the articles that cited this multiplied, right? There was sort of this built upon a, on this shoddy foundation, so to speak, uh, this growing belief and growing evidence in the literature base that, well, opioids just don't hurt us. All evidence to the contrary, right? Correct. And I have some of the quotes that the paper that you're referring to that basically looked at how misrepresented this little paragraph was. So some of the quotes include, in truth, however, the medical evidence overwhelmingly indicates that properly administered opioid therapy rarely, if ever, results in accidental addiction or opioid abuse. So really just, I think it was, and as we'll get into, the drug companies really kind of anchored onto this idea that when opiates are used in pain management, there's a low risk of addiction. I think it would be easy to keep talking about all of these points, but I'm going to move through these maybe a little faster than than uh, you're ready for. If if you want me to slow down, tell me to. Tell me you've got more, okay? Okay. Ready for the next uh, stop on this tour? Let's go. Pain patient or patient pain advocacy or advocacy for pain treatment in patients. Tell me about that. Yeah. So here's where we really start to see a focus on you know, a lot of these national organizations saying we're not treating pain effectively. And in doing so, there was a strong movement, especially by the Joint Commission, to document pain as a fifth vital sign in emergency and hospitalized setting. So along with heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, now we're adding pain. And what this did was it now led to hospital protocols and opiate prescribing practices that were using a subjective vital sign, as the Joint Commission labeled it, um, as a driving force of opiate prescribing. I think this led to another problem, right? Uh, the Joint Commission and the VA, I think, were both involved in making that decision, two of the large drivers of health care in the United States, and, and drivers of health care practices in the United States, particularly within hospitals. Uh, physician rating cards. Correct, yeah. So now we have the emergence of pain, you know, as a fifth vital sign, and in that, hospitals and um, health care administrations are being reimbursed based on the quality of their care. And in that quality of care came the subjective idea of what, it, what are our patients' pain levels? Are we treating them effectively? And that led to some, I think, pretty heavy overprescribing of opiates. There are so many threads that this pulls at. So there were a couple of groups, I think you mentioned those before, the anesthesiology groups, the pain management groups, and then I, th I think even you suggested, but I'm not sure if I heard this correctly, that maybe the World Health Organization, starting back in the 70s, maybe could have built some of the underpinnings of this with their increasing attention to pain management. Correct, yes. Okay. There was a, um, I think there was a really strong push to, we're not treating pain effectively, 
And that coincided at the same time as this idea that we can use opiates to treat chronic pain without the risk of addiction. And that kind of led to a perfect storm of let's treat our patient's pain for quality improvement purposes without recognizing the risks that, of exposing patients to opiate medications. Two other little threads inside of this. I remember being in medical school in 1998, maybe, and hearing somebody tell me that opioids don't cause pain addiction, right? Um, and that we are under treating pain and that opioids are effective pain treatment. In other words, it required physicians to not understand the risks of opioids as well, right? So we have a joint commission and VA measures. We have uh, a growing groundswell from advocacy agencies. We have uh, medical students that are taught opioids good. Um, and now we add into that quality scores of emergency room physicians, for example. If I don't get my opioid from you, I will write a nasty review and your pay will go down. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so that was another driving force of overprescribing opiate medications is there was a big push on, you know, patient satisfaction scores and reimbursement practices and quality of care uh, guidelines. And what that did was it really put physicians between a rock and a hard place where they're maybe on the fence about prescribing opiate medications, but they're being pushed by administrative policies and also patient demand for, I'm in chronic pain, I need treatment, and you're left saying, well, I guess I need to prescribe an opiate. Or else. Or else. <laughs> so even, <clears throat> even physicians that are working as hard as they can to prevent uh, the, the flow, <coughs> excuse me, even physicians who are working as hard as they can to minimize the flow of opioids into the community are being thwarted by regulatory measures that force them to. Uh, the medical education has changed slightly to try and address this in the last 10 years or so. I came across an acronym, SBIRT. Tell me what you know about SBIRT. <laughs> yeah, okay, let me pull this up here. <clears throat> So SPURT is this idea of we need to be screening patients for opioid dependency. Um, and that's kind of shifted from this idea of let's just ask patients about are they using opiate medications to really using screening tools to try and find, okay, what's the prevalence of our patient populations that are dependent on opioids. And SPURT I believe stands for screening. Um, I'm trying to remember the rest of the acronym. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't either. But there's a combination of screening, motivational interviewing, and then referral for treatment. And so the idea is we really want to identify patients that are at risk or are currently dependent on opioids and get them referred to a medical assisted therapy clinic. And even though this was uh, implemented a number of years ago, what I read is still not really used, so even though it's billable. Correct, yeah. Still not really used, but I think there is a growing use of medical assisted therapy, which we'll probably get into next podcast, um, which has shown to be really helpful in treating 
opioid dependency. The physicians, we've, we've talked about physician training, we've talked about physicians being forced to prescribe opioids, we've talked about patient advocacy, we've talked about some regulatory mistakes that the FDA made. Uh, we'll probably talk about a few more of those. Tell me about the role of opioid manufacturing and supply chain in this uh, crisis. Sure, so this is you know probably one of the most um, newsworthy components of the opioid ed- epidemic is is notifying and kind of pinpointing that there was some pretty strong competitive pharmaceutical marketing when it came to opiate medications and particularly Purdue Pharma um, shit kind of carries a lot of the weight with that in that they came out with a extended release form of oxycodone so oxycontin um, that came out in 1999 and in the early 2000s, there was a really um, strong competitive effort for Purdue pharmacy t- pharmaceuticals to influence providers that it is a safe drug that can be used in treating chronic pain when it really wasn't indicated for that. And that's where the FDA kind of dropped the ball too, is they didn't come out with a narrow indication for OxyContin. Instead, it was you can use it for fibromyalgia, you can use it for chronic low back pain, you can use it for osteoarthritis rather than um, acute pain or inpatient settings. My understanding is that the FDA leadership, like they, they were getting messages from the National Academy of Sciences, they were getting messages from all over the place saying there's a problem with opioids and they said no, no problem and even until just a few years ago left in the OxyContin labeling that it was a safe, non-addictive medication to prescribe. Yeah, the FDA re- said that addiction was very rare with OxyContin. And I think one of the big problems, and we see this in all avenues um, of healthcare and politics, is that there was a lot of um, relationships between people in the FDA and pharmaceutical companies. And I think that led to some neglect of responsibility when it came to looking at the risk factors of an opiate medication Um, and there's a lot of conflicts of interest that some good articles have shown and demonstrated between the FDA and pharmaceutical companies. As a student that watches me on Mondays, as as you know during our our clinicals that we have with our patients, I always use a proverb. the proverb that came to mind just barely was the fox is guarding the hen house. <laughs> I think you mentioned something about pharmaceutical companies regulating themselves with the opioids. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so so within all the context of the opioid crisis, we haven't really talked much about the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, because um, they're at the forefront of dealing with the consequences of both illicit substances and misused prescribed substances. And one interesting thing that I read was that the there's a monitoring system to look at how pharmacies are distributing opiates. And as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, there was some pharmacies, especially in the Appalachian states, um, one in particular that we found was a pharmacy called Boonville Discount Drugs in Kentucky that was prescribing over a hundred pills per person annually um, in their within their county within their county 
And the DEA has in place a drug monitoring program to try and keep these pharmacies in check, but essentially it had turned over the responsibility of monitoring it to drug companies and pharmaceutical companies. And so they want to sell their product, and if they're monitoring the dis- distribution of their product, there might be some oversight on how much is being distributed. So just to be clear, we don't want to be sued by Boone Pharmacy. Or Bar- Boone Pharmacy. Um, we're not saying that what Boone Pharmacy did was right or wrong. We just know how unusual it is that in a county of 10,000 people, probably with more than one pharmacy, uh, nearby that uh, one pharmacy itself can dispense that many pills. Uh, that, that seems like a tremendous number and uh, again there has to be a physician writing the script to make that happen, right? Correct. Yeah. So uh, we talk about rogue pharmacies as well in, the, uh, in this article on the, pres- the President's Commission article or, or report I guess is a better word. And it wasn't clear to me what that meant, and I know that there's an index that maybe has more details, but I do believe that there were uh, some cozy relationships that were concerning where uh, Walgreens was having all of their pharmacists meeting with the pharmaceutical reps from um, from Purdue, I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I think the pharmacists became involved in helping patients ask for drugs potentially that might be potentially addictive. Um, Yeah, an interesting statistic that I found was that in 2001, Purdue Pharmaceuticals spent roughly $200 million in marketing, and this was primarily geared towards OxyContin. That's a lot of money. (laughs) I've read stories about kickbacks as well, so I think I have read allegations that Purdue Pharma was giving kickbacks to doctors who were prescribing certain amounts of drugs if you got into a certain tier. And I think they were also potentially giving kickbacks to, to pharmacies. Any information that you have about that? I don't have, I don't have a good list of numbers or kind of money values associated with that, but I do know that Purdue did a very good job in researching which prescribers in the early 2000s already had a propensity to prescribe opiate opiate medications. And what they were able to do was target their marketing to these oftentimes primary care physicians who were already not afraid to prescribe opiates, and they really were able to distribute a lot of their drug through this small group of providers. Okay, so I could be completely wrong about kickbacks to providers or uh, pharmacies. I think there are there are kickbacks there. I just don't have the data. The hard on that. data on it. Yeah. yeah, I thought I had read something about that a couple of weeks ago. Again, I don't have the article in front of me at the moment. Uh, unethical docs. I remember uh, a couple of interesting stories when I was working in a medication-assisted therapy um, setting. I had a clinic with a Suboxone license, mm-hmm. and I had one patient. I remember telling me that what they would do is take turns, he and a friend, they would get a baseball bat and hit each other in the ribs so that they could go into the emergency room and get opioids for their pain. I can't help but think that a broken rib at this point would probably not immediately get opioids in the emergency room, but maybe uh, one of the uh, NSAIDs and Tylenol, right? And some coaching on how many times are you gonna get broken ribs and keep coming in, right? Correct. The other thing that struck me um, about one of the uh, 
patients that I remember talking to who was trying to get off opioids was that if they were to show up with an x-ray uh, in Vegas, I mean, it's always Vegas, right? Vegas, it, whatever was going wrong, I lived in St. Mm -hmm. George at the time, and whatever was going wrong was clearly happening in Vegas, mm -hmm. not in St. George. I, I, I know that's not accurate, but that's what, that was the story, right? right. And so I would have uh, patients tell me that as long as they were able to show up with an x-ray, they would be able to get a bottle of opiates and a lot. Yeah, and I think there's been a good shift in the amount of opiates that are being prescribed in terms of quantity and uh, dose of opiates being prescribed, but they still are being prescribed, you know, and we're not even close to the levels that we saw in the late 1990s when it comes to opiate prescriptions, and I think a lot of it is misinformation or now we have a lot of people who are opiate dependent and, you know, we're dealing with a real epidemic. I think that speaks in part to uh, patient education. So uh, patients starting on opioids, they feel good, right? Um, and, and I'm going to tie two threads together here if I can. We talk about the number of opioids going out as if maybe they're simply being diverted. They go to somebody who then sells them off to highest bidder sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that does happen. But we're also aware, one of the things that really surprised me, I think, was the pathway to addiction is, is remarkably easy, right, to dependence mm -hmm. on these substances. I remember sitting in a CME lecture from a physician, I think he was a surgeon, at, at, with IHC, and he said essentially, hey, I, I have uh, this person I know, and this person I know was the greatest kid in the world until this kid, I won't do gender, I won't say more, sure. I won't, I'll try to be very, very you know, discreet about this. Uh, this person that I uh, am very familiar with was a young kid who found some pills in a bottle and took them one night to help uh, her or him relax and uh, it was over after the first night. I think he told another story about uh, another person that he was uh, familiar with who was prescribed these medications for an orthopedic injury and noticed that every night one was being taken and it was used essentially as a sleep aid and an anti-anxiolytic mm -hmm. and uh, was terrified about, hey, how many pills are we leaving out there? Are we leaving so many pills in people's hands that there are extras laying around that then become the nidus for addiction? And what he found was we're terribly over-prescribing for these acute injuries, for these uh, surgeries, and I think even now we've gone away from opioids for surgeries. The point being that we weren't telling patients, get rid of the pills in your closet, get rid of the pills when you're done. There are drop-off boxes that you can take these to at, at any pharmacy so that these pills aren't out in the community. Put them in a safe, right? Patient ed education and the role of access and continuation. Anything that you read along those lines? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head is that a lot of times people that are becoming dependent on opiate medications, a lot of it isn't starting on the street. It's starting in grandma's bathroom medicine cabinet. And so the idea of these medications are dangerous and have addictive properties 
is an important thing to talk about when prescribing medications and that if they are to be kept in a house, they really should be kept safely, even under lock and key, because it's so easy to for somebody to say, oh, here's a medication that helps me sleep, and fast forward a couple months and they have a dependency. Um, I think sometimes being in medicine, maybe in psychiatry makes me a little bit cynical, but whenever I hear somebody say, you know, I just wanted to help out grandma, so I went over to clean her house, I immediately panic and assume that that, you know, probably great kid yeah. is uh, addicted to opioids at age you know, 15, 16, 17, yeah. because that's one of the stories I heard over and over and over. Well, how did you get the Oxycontin? Well, what would happen is my grandma would forget how many she's taking, she didn't take them all, so I'd go help her clean her house and, you know, take a bunch out of her closet, and I was, I was amazed at how often I heard similar kinds of stories. Yeah, and I think that if you were to find a silver lining in this horrible opioid epidemic that we're facing right now, is that we are seeing a lot of, you know, we're, I think we're losing the stigma of drug addiction in that we're seeing a lot of young, um, often well-to-do people becoming dependent on you know, prescription medications that unfortunately now is leading to a lot of illicit drug use and buying medication or buying drugs from the street and leading to some pretty bad and fatal consequences. So that was going to be not my next question, but I'm going to switch order now. Okay. Unintended consequences. Yeah. What happened when the DEA started enforcing some of the rules when uh, state organizations started looking more closely at the high prescribers and the pill supply started to cut down? Yeah, so I think um, I was reading an article that talked about the you know, opioid crisis kind of being in three waves. And the first wave did start in the early 2000s with this overprescribing. And then what happened, I think it was around 2005, 2006, is drug manufacturers changed the way that their pills were formed in that they were crush resistance. And so now, with somebody not being able to crush up a medication, uh, Oxycontin and snort it, there was this kind of elevation of heroin use. People were turning to the street to find heroin so that they could inject it because they couldn't crush up medications. And then the third wave is now there's a lot of de-prescribing efforts, which in good theory and in you know, wholehearted you know, w attempts to try and decrease prescribing, we're now seeing a lot of people who are addicted to opioid medications also turning to the streets and using heroin, and now the really big offender is fentanyl, um, which is a highly potent synthetic opiate that people are getting off the street and overdosing from it. The overdose, boy, I can't speak. <laughs> you and I talked about a couple of things that I, I think we maybe should have mentioned at the very beginning. How many people die a year from opioid overdose? So I think the most recent data I saw from 2020 was an estimated 93,000 people overdosed from opiates. I want to put this in context. The worst thing I think of quite often is uh, the 
conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? I think war is terrible. And just to be clear, I'm not making a statement about rightness or wrongness of those wars. I'm just saying war sucks. Mm -hmm. How many people did those wars kill? Five, six thousand people? Yeah. Pretty, I mean, in comparison to the number of people that overdosed last year, a small proportion of that. I think even uh, total number dead in the Vietnam War, right, was under this. And I think World War II, where we think about a tremendous number of uh, American casualties, we're getting there, right? Right. I think the Civil War, the war between the states, had around a million casualties. And if we're having nearly 90,000 per year over 20 years, we might be now in a crisis more deadly than the Civil War. Are my numbers close there? They're, yeah, I mean, you're spot on. I, I think the, from what I remember, the estimated number of deaths from overdosing from opiates only, so not talking about amphetamines or cocaine or alcohol, um, was, I think, close to a million since 2000. There was, a, and that's just death. Just, I hate to say it that way, just <laughs> sure. deaths, yeah. right? But there was an interesting quote that came out of the Collodi uh, article, which talked about some of the regulatory FDA mistakes. And they noted that one of the judges when they had ruled against, I believe, uh, one of the pharma companies or one of the pharmacies, I don't remember which now, said that uh, the increased addiction, overdose deaths, babies born dependent on medications were caused by false, misleading, and dangerous marketing campaigns. The, the point of that is not the, the pharmacy and the, and the uh, manufacturing supply chain industry role in that. The point is when we're talking about deaths, sort of like when we talk about the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, we're not just talking about the deaths, we're talking about the IED injuries with the blast injuries, the loss of limbs, the PTSD, the lost years of productivity in the society, the damaged relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And almost all of those things can be equally applied to the opioid crisis. Um, over and over I talked to uh, young men and women who traded sex for drugs and uh, were very traumatized by that, right? They started off buying Oxycontin uh, in the early 2000s for somewhere between 50 cents to $2 a milligram. Mm -hmm. They would tend to max out at somewhere around three to five Oxycontin at 80 milligrams. So you do the math and that's somewhere around, uh, what, five times 80 is uh, 400 milligrams. So somewhere between $200 a day and if you're not a very good buyer of Oxycontin, uh, $800 a day, right? right? And then they just you just can't steal enough to do that. So I talked to young adult after young adult who had been caught by their parents you know, after having gone through a couple of thousand dollars, sold all of their personal belongings, and now had uh, no other options other than to buy heroin, right? right. So, so uh, or trade as I said, quite often trading sex for drugs, ending up in positions that were incredibly traumatic. Uh, a number of these uh, young adults ended up in places that led to injury, right? This is not just death. This is no. death and destruction. And we're seeing, you know, rising rates of hepatitis C, you know, in relation to intravenous drug use. And I think that's one of the things that we have, you know, emerging treatments for hepatitis C. So these are serious, you know, 
long-lasting diseases for people. Um, I mean, we were starting to get on top of that, I think, at one point until this burst in the, yeah. in the epidemic again. Um, one of the things that baffled me through all of this was that the insurance companies didn't go, no. Right. No, we're just not. I mean, in all the time I have insurance companies tell me that they will not authorize, uh, or in the past, that they won't authorize branded antidepressants at $100 a month, right? Or maybe now $300 a month. But when I was practicing privately, I would get letter after letter telling me they just weren't willing to give these medications up to people, mm -hmm. antidepressants. And yet there seemed to be no barriers to opioids. Tell, did, did you read anything about insurance companies just not being helpful yeah I think you know as as part of that first wave that I mentioned earlier where there is this you know huge over prescription of opiate based medications um, a lot of insurance companies and I don't know if this was in they were trying to do this to help consumers or not but they offered uh, cheaper rates for medications if they had longer prescriptions and the idea is well I want you know consumers of this to be able to afford a long prescription of an opiate medication um, to reduce the amount of refills needed but they were very heavily involved in the distribution of um, and coverage of you know opiate medications even Medicare wasn't gatekeeping whatsoever no no, there was a really lack of, of oversight um, in the early 2000s. Talking about the waves just a little bit, the, the commission report said that one of the other factors involved in the crisis, and I think this probably relates to second, third wave kinds of things, mm -hmm. is that there's not enough medication-assisted treatment. Yeah, so I think that's one of the things that hopefully... Um, some of these big lawsuits that have been coming out in the last couple years um, with Purdue and Johnson & Johnson, that the funding from those lawsuits hopefully really gets directed towards medication-assisted therapy. Um, and we're, we're, the medical community is developing better drugs to treat opioid dependence, which we'll probably get into in, in a later podcast. Um, but hopefully a lot of these monies coming from lawsuits can be directed into that type of funding for medical assisted therapy. Speaking of money, <laughs> um, there were some estimates that we read about the cost of the opioid crisis, right? And I think what we concluded was it was almost the same cost as the uh, conflicts in Iraq and Iran. Does yeah. that sound right? Yeah. When we started counting up all the different things and looking Correct. at it. And Correct. And costs that large or sometimes so hard to grasp, but it's an enormous cost um, that the opioid crisis has. One of the numbers that I was uh, not able to find, and I wonder if you found this, uh, Purdue Pharma, I th think, settled, right? J&J, &J, there's some reports that they're settling uh, yesterday or today. J&J, yeah. uh, I think, is going to settle for $26 billion. Yeah. And how much did they make on opioids? Any idea? Gosh, I don't have that data, but I imagine it's more than that. Um, yeah, there was a lot of money involved in the marketing and distribution of opiates. 
thousands and thousands and thousands and well pills I was going to say per county but <laughs> really yeah. it's millions and not millions and millions of pills yeah um, what haven't I asked you about what have we not addressed gosh I think that we've really kind of talked about a lot of the underpinnings on the opioid crisis and the kind of the three waves that we've developed um, I think currently kind of a thing to be aware of is we are seeing that the opioid crisis isn't over and I think one thing that kind of drives people attention to these types of things is media coverage and with the pandemic happening and so much you know media being directed towards that there hasn't been a lot of talk about the opioid crisis in the news but we saw 93,000 people which was the highest amount per year we saw 93,000 people OD last year during the pandemic. Um, so this isn't something that has gone away, even though it might not be on the forefronts of people's minds. Does, is there a role with the synthetic fentanyl that's on the market? Is that why the the overdoses seems to be climbing? The overdose number seems to be climbing, or is there are there other factors? Yeah, exactly. I think um, a lot of politicians and, and researchers are looking at fentanyl being laced into things like heroin or prescription medications, or not prescription medications, but illicit substances um, like methamphetamine or cocaine that people will take not knowing that there's fentanyl laced in it. Mm -hmm. And in turn, fentanyl is such a potent opioid that you know people are going into respiratory distress within a couple minutes after taking something. So really, I mean, driving accidental overdoses is fentanyl. Other things that I have neglected to ask about? I don't think so. I think we want to kind of, I'd, lo I'd love to talk about medication and medical assisted therapy, you know, because that's the solution in my opinion, um, in conjunction with a lot of, you know, regulations and, and there's obviously not one solution, but medication assisted therapy is starting to really take the forefront in leading to, um, maintenance therapy for people with opioid dependence, but we don't have time to talk about that on this podcast. No, we'll, we'll tackle that next. Um, I, I, you, may, you said one thing I want to follow up on very, very briefly, and then we'll do takeaways. Yeah. Uh, you said something along the lines of the opioid crisis isn't over. My experience with opioids was that once somebody is addicted or dependent on opioids, we've used those terms interchangeably in part because the language of the crisis is addiction, the language of treatment is dependence, uh, the language of the DSM more recently is use disorder, and in no way are we trying to use the incorrect language, but be aware that, that those three terms have different places where they're used more commonly. In the in For the shelf exam, if you've made it all the way through this podcast, <laughs> use disorder is the language you want to be remembering, and addiction is not the, the language in the medical setting. Um, but my, my experience was that once somebody had opioid use disorder, they had opioid yeah. use disorder. It's seen as a chronic illness that requires chronic treatment, um, yeah. similar to diabetes or chronic kidney disease. Yeah, I think until we get in that mindset... I think the opioid crisis is going to continue to be very, very problematic. Yeah. 
I would add one other comment that we didn't address, and that was that we didn't have a we don't have a prevention strategy, and we haven't had a prevention strategy for about 20 years. I think a few threads are starting to weave themselves into prevention, but in, in terms of a national prevention strategy, we didn't have one when the crisis started. Did you read anything about that? Yeah, I, I mean that's a that's a difficult thing to tackle. I think in in all things, you know, the best place to start with prevention is education and so doing things like this podcast and getting information out there um, about the risks of opioid use disorder um, can start conversations about what's the best preventative um, you know guideline or, or direction but there's not a current kind of this is how we can prevent opioid use disorder as far as I'm concerned, as far as far as I've read, I feel like you were much better prepared for this podcast than I was. So I'm going to give you the last word. Last, mm-hmm. uh, my takeaways: a couple. First of all, um, the thing that feels closest to me is the idea that medical literature was flawed. Right, that we didn't do a good job of addressing the challenges of recitation and citation of literature. One thing we didn't comment on was that this this article or this standalone uh, comment mm-hmm. in the editorial section of the New England Journal was recited about 800 times, whatever it was. Right. Um, and the the takeaway that we have is that that became fact. There was one study that was done in all of the things we read. I, I, well, there were a number of studies, but this is the one study I focused on most. And that the data are that this article seemed to run away compared to other standalone articles. And those other standalone articles that were published near the same time in the New England Journal were cited a median of 11 times. Yeah. And this one was cited nearly a thousand times, right? Closer to a thousand than 11. Right. That, that's the first takeaway. The second takeaway I had was it's it's very easy for me. I sometimes get a little bit uh, bullheaded, a little bit, mm-hmm. and I'm like, let's. I'm pounding a table here. I don't have a very good table to pound. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I want to solve this problem, and that's the cause, right? Or that's the blame. Right. And one of the things that really came to me during you know as as this evolved, as you and I talked about the different factors leading to uh, this crisis, it was multifactorial, even beyond. The factors I was tracking, right? I, I, I never saw anything until we started trying to look for the data about the cause, about all of these uh, roughly 15 factors that we addressed, including insurance companies right. paying for this, right? I mean, those things. I kind of had some awareness of many of these at different times, but you know, boom, right there yeah. in front of me. Very it's complex. Very issue. multifactorial in the origins of this, and you know, I think. One thing I think that I've really, I love going into the history of this and really trying to put pieces together, but in the end, it's like, we're here in 2021, what are the things that are being done now that we can help, you know, hopefully remedy some of the consequences that we've had over the last couple decades. Um, And so I think really looking to the future, and I think some of these, you know, lawsuits that we're seeing are hopefully going to drive monies into medical assisted therapy and, and hopefully being able to combat the crisis that we've been enduring for the last couple of decades. So I don't want to take away your takeaway, but was that your takeaway? That was my takeaway. <laughs> so medication assisted <laughs> therapy then, right? Yeah. I like it. I, I, again, 
from the very beginning that you arrived here, that became very clear to me that 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 experience that you had with that physician. By the way, would you like to name that physician so that physician's name gets out there? Sure, yeah. So um, his name is Dr. Bush. Um, he's based here in, in Utah County. He, he works for the Wasatch Behavioral Health State Department and also has a private clinic. Um, great influence, great mentor, and really actually pushed me into wanting to go into family medicine rather than emergency medicine because I could see the use in an outpatient setting for talking about things like opioid addiction and alcohol addiction and how important that is. Man, that's very, very cool that yeah. you would... Uh, I, I wish that everybody that was listening could see the influence. I mean, it's it's one thing to hear it, but then to also watch Alex as he's talking about these things, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, there's this brightness about him and this excitement and a smile. Uh, Dr. Bush, thank you for influencing somebody to see my patients the way I see them in a setting that's not in psychiatry. I appreciate that. Yeah. On that note... Thank you for a very well done podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And team out. Yeah. You're supposed to say team out. Team out. Uh, thank you. <laughs>